0: 2946 corrected center point elevation zero feet check your barrel in zero check your SS 12303034 30, check your feel check your seat off lights
1: out welcome to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show with David Costa Your brake off. Check your trim set. Check your nozzle steering on maneuver. And half turn out. Now. In the dark of the early morning on January 17th, 1991, eight attack helicopters loaded with missiles flew low over the desert, speeding towards the border separating Saudi Arabia from Iraq. At 2.30 a.m., the Apaches and tactical formation teams of two used their Hellfire missiles on two Iraqi radars that were powerful enough to potentially pick up the faint signature of a stealth jet. The U.S. Army Apache gunships had reduced the Iraqi radar sites to rubble and cleared the way for the F-117 stealth fighters on their way to bomb Baghdad. It was the Apache crews that had kicked open the door at the start of the gulf war stop what you are doing and listen to what i have in store for you today aviators are helicopter pilots too we all love top gun man but give kudos to the apache gunslingers here we go all right ladies and gentlemen this is david costa i am the renegade aviator and i got a special guest today because you know what We talk as aviators about aviation, and you think of, you know, at least I do, fighter jets and regular general aviation airplane and corporate jets. But what gets, I guess, lost in the wash is helicopters, but not just any helicopter, Army attack helicopters. And I've got a special guest today, Art Grabensk, who is a combat Apache helicopter pilot. And what we don't talk a lot about are some of the stories out of the Gulf War. We talk about World War II a lot. We talk about modern air show flying, but what kind of gets lost in the shuffle is the wars that our guys and girls are fighting today still there, any form or fashion, and the Gulf War was a biggie. So, Art, welcome to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show.
0: Well, thank you, David. I appreciate you allowing me to be here.
1: Right on. Art, introduce yourself a little bit because you've got quite a resume and I will do uh, irreparable harm if I try to do it on my own. So please introduce yourself to our guests.
0: Okay. Name is Art Grabensk. I am a retired Chief Warrant Officer 5 aviator on the Apache helicopter, age 64, Alpha and Delta models, and uh, retired in 2013 after 27 years of uh, Army Aviation.
1: Wow. So, uh, you were highly involved, and as we were talking kind of offline, we were talking a little bit about the initial Gulf War and what went through your mind as a younger man in the Army with the Apache helicopter. And uh, I think people really don't have a clue of how this whole thing kind of ramped up and what goes through the mind of a young helicopter pilot getting ready to face something pretty darn big.
0: Well, right out of flight school, I was assigned to an armor armored division, 1st Apache Battalion with the uh, 3rd Armored Division, they were still fielding the aircraft. And so that summer, just for normal tactics of uh, original, was to get ready for the big columns of tanks, you know, the Russian coming down the Folder Gap into into West Germany at the time. And, and, uh I remember sitting in my living room and hearing C-5s come over my home. I, w- I lived in housing there right by Frankfurt. And uh, it was kind of odd, and sure enough, on the television, Iraq had uh, invaded Kuwait. So, again, being there with 3rd Armored Division, like, well, that's probably no way we're going to be involved in this. So, anyway, we did get alerted, and the Army decided to pull an Apache battalion out of Germany and co it with the uh, 101st Aviation, at the time, Desert Shield. So we got there beginning of september just as the build-up began
1: so new people nobody's ever been to combat and at the time you're probably not even thinking this is going to be what it was what it turned out to be and for the benefit of the audience that may not have a clue apache helicopters are a different breed these are not medevac helicopters these are helicopters down and dirty and as a former u.s marine corps grunt i can appreciate this uh really cool piece of equipment that pops out of the tree line and uh, can do a whole bunch of damage. So tell us a little bit about what the Apache helicopter is. Sure. Well,
0: it was designed for um, the anti-tank mission. That's what it was designed for. That's what the armament is basically. It's equipped with is the Hellfire missiles, eight Hellfire missiles, 38 rockets, and up to twelve millimeter armor-piercing. rounds. So that was the design of the aircraft. And again, it was the buildup during the Reagan years and the, and deployed to Germany. So when we got the call to go to Iraq, obviously the intent was, because Iraq had so many uh, armored vehicles, that we were there to protect uh, Saudi Arabia. And again, in the early stages, didn't know that we were actually going to go to war. So we, we were stationed at King Fahd International Airport, which is the King's personal airport, 10,000-foot runways, if you can imagine. We, the 101st Aviation was on one side, and the Air Force, most of the A-10s attack aircraft were, were on the other. So we got to spend many months in a parking garage, no tents, no housing. We were literally had our own parking space on three levels of this parking garage. Every aviator and every well, all the soldiers assigned. And that was a hot summer, I can tell you. But to fast forward, we did train for the event, and we were training in Germany also to go against columns of tanks. So we were preparing just in case the talks broke down. Obviously, we were all interested in what was going on. And at some point during the deployment, we were moved out of that area because there was signs that the talks were probably going to break down. So as Army aviators, again, we deployed to the desert, somewhere safe and unknown, uh, still in Saudi Arabia, and lived in our single man tents right next to the boom. That's how you fight when you're first in, I call it, when you're actually going to maybe have some operations during the first push. And the evening, the Air Force started or Desert Storm started. We were all woken up, because we weren't briefed, that uh, it was gonna start by droves of A-10s overhead. <laughs> and believe me, as a young aviator, um, you still, it was kind of surreal. We thought maybe there was gonna be an agreement. We were all gonna go home. But uh, taking out my old Walkman that I had to listen to the radio, I heard the reports on CNN, and I guess uh, it was kind of surreal. And I just remember, full of emotion, we all were, well, this is real, and we're going to start. And uh, so that was the, actually the first day of Desert
1: Storm. You say it so calmly, and I guess it's it's hindsight, right? We look back as more mature and more experienced, but what I'm sitting here grappling with is, you know, that putting myself into your shoes, you go from not, I guess we're never really as prepared as we thought we were going to be until that flag goes up and it's time to roll. And that's a huge thing to ask of our young people today. And, and the segment with that, we're going to come back after that. I really want to play into that is how prepared are we as people in life right? Because you can go from zero to hero to zero again in the matter of a day. So we're going to come right back after the break with Art Grubensk talking about the Apache helicopters during the Gulf War. David Costa, Renegade Aviator, stay right there. It's been almost 30 years. Can you believe that? The Gulf War started almost 30 years ago, and the AH AH-64 Apache is still the world's premier attack helicopter. This gunship cost approximately $35 million a pop. And speaking of a pop, it holds 16 Hellfire missiles under its stub wings. What is the Hellfire? The AGM-114, an air-to-surface missile, First developed for anti-armor use, but later developed for precision strikes against other types of targets, and they've been used in a number of targeted killings of high-profile individuals. Multi-mission, multi-target precision strike ability, and can be launched from multiple air, sea, and ground platforms, including the Predator drone. The Hellfire missile is the primary 100-pound class air-to-ground precision weapon for the armed forces of the U.S. and many other nations. But we're not talking sissy drones today with pilots who fly them from another country far away from the combat zone. Today, we're talking about pilots who can look out the window and see the whites of the eyes of whom they are about to engage, Apache aviators. As a former Marine Corps grunt, I have a lot of respect. For the aviators down in the weeds are now in the streets with boots on the ground. All right, this is David Costa, and I want you to go here, vetswithwings.com, vetswithwings.com. The mission of Vets with Wings is to use aviation to empower veterans through flight experiences and educational programs. Vets with Wings, our chosen nonprofit here at the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. Vets with Wings uses aviation-related activities and airplane rides to give veterans struggling with injuries, illness, PTSD, and other combat-related conditions an opportunity to escape by soaring above their crises, complications, and struggles. Join me in supporting VetsWithWings.com. Consider a donation. Consider helping out. Consider coming out to our events. Tell them Dave Costa, the Renegade Aviator, sent you. Do it now. We promote aviation, ladies and gentlemen. There are opportunities for pilots, mechanics, engineers, air traffic controllers, and all kinds of support staff in aviation. Interested in a career in aviation but don't know where to start? Give me a call. 888-366-5256. Leave a message. We will call you back and do our best to help you on your new career in aviation 8883665256 here he is david costa all right, David Costa, Segment 2, Renegade Aviator Radio Show with Mr. Art Grubensk, former senior warrant officer with the United States Army and with the 3rd Infantry Division in the Gulf War with the Apache helicopter. This is something unique. When we ended the last segment, and if you missed the last segment, shame on you, go to my podcast, just find us, The search Renegade Aviator, you'll find us. Art, I really want to focus on that. Here you are listening to a Walkman and you hear about the war starting on CNN. Boy, that wasn't like that in the Second World War, was it?
0: (laughs) No, again, it surprised all of us in in one way, I guess. I wouldn't say denial, but you're you're prepared, but there's nothing like the realization that this is it. And um, not only did we hear the bombing through the radio, but you could see it. Although we were still in Saudi Arabia and the Air Force was doing operations in Kuwait, you could see the very faint, night the explosions on the horizon <laughs> so we were on a little bit of a high ground just watching all night and uh you could see the air force coming over our location with anti-collision lights and they turn them off at some point so you knew what was going on so you're prepared for it you're confident but there's still always a hope well, but hopefully we can go home and everything will be settled and they'll leave but and obviously they did not
1: What were those first missions like? What was the role of the Apache? How were you guys employed? And, uh, you know, obviously you're probably heading into a brief, right? So now this thing has started up and the pilots are going into a brief. You're being briefed on your first missions. What do those missions kind of look and feel like?
0: Well, once the air war started, we were detached from the 101st Division and reattached to actually 18th Airborne Corps as a corps asset, meaning we were at the corps commander to send us anywhere across his battle space. And uh, we were right there at the border, well, still in Saudi Arabia, but uh, at some point they moved us, as you know, all the way out west into an area called Rafa. And for weeks we watched tanks on low boys and equipment just come by. And it was just an amazing thing to see. I think what stuck in my mind prior to even pulling the trigger was the logistics. I couldn't, you know, it was almost like they moved the whole American army over to Saudi Arabia. and. Uh, The actual 101st from history, you know, they were the first in to knock out a a radar site that opened up a corridor for the Air Force. But we were sent out a few days before the ground war started, or maybe a week before the ground war started, do some probes, some um, some movements to contact. We were working with the French with their side-looking radar, one of the French divisions, and uh, they would uh, pop up at the time, the technology, they would just pop up and the battlefield, and there would be uh, little uh, indications on a screen there where we were located, and um, and they sent us to interdict, and uh, I can tell you that uh, that first mission, especially when you are an hour into enemy territory, at least where they were massed, it's a funny feeling. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> I can tell you that uh, the threat maps looked like they were everywhere, but, you know, the reality is when you get there, it's a lot more sparse, but. We actually did um, contact the enemy and, and did some operations. Again, I think what stands out in my mind was the, the heightened sense of awareness. Let me put it that way. I won't <laughs> say we were, <laughs> we were afraid. There was a, a definitely a heightened sense of awareness, especially when uh, the aircraft had a little bit of reliability problems at the beginning of its fielding, and uh, we did see a column of trucks. We saw the tank tracks, but we never located the tanks. We saw a column of vehicles, enemy vehicles, in just the middle of the desert, and uh, we tried, or we began to engage. My thirty millimeter jammed, which again was a little bit of a problem back then, especially in the sand. And then the rockets were inhibited from firing because they had just put these external auxiliary tanks on us, that and uh, forgot to program the computer to tell the computer there was. Not a rocket pod on that side, but a tank. So Uh make a long story short, make a long story short, about the time we were engaging, our warning device went off, our radar warning device went off solid. That was an experience because in the simulator, what soon came after that was an explosion. (laughs) Once you got detected. So we actually did see, uh, actually it was a ground radar site. We did destroy it with Hellfire missiles. And I think the whole way back, I just couldn't believe that we had done that. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be there. We weren't briefed. Even the intelligence folks, when we got back, were like, well, we doing? there's nothing there. And I said, sir, here it is on the film. <laughs> i briefing the Corps commander and back in Saudi Arabia and saying, yeah, they're out there. So that was the first mission. And I think I was a little self-conscious for a few years that, uh, well, why did I sound so scared on the audio? <laughs> because I was... Put it this way, I was expressing myself very plainly about my disappointment and what the weapons do in the 30-millimeter. Yeah. But, you know, I realized that that's normal. I heard it from the Navy when they engaged in uh, Libya. It's something you never get used to. It You calm down eventually, but your first interdiction is probably the most memorable.
1: I really like how you say it in, in such uh, calm terms today, and I think most people, and thank God that most people will go through their lives never having to face a combat situation. But we all face difficult challenges, and you know part of that is being prepared, doing what you're supposed to be doing. But what I'm also hearing is there is no bravado. Those who have been there do not have the bravado of the people that were nowhere near the actual fighting and want to tell war stories. Um, I think that's key. But what I do want to touch on as we come back after this next break is a little bit about what the Apache is, a little bit about the aircraft and how it's changed, because this is the Renegade Aviator radio show. And we do want to see, you know what, I tell guys all the time, you want to be down and dirty in the thick of it really flying an aircraft where you can uh, still see the ground (laughs) the uh, apache is one heck of an aircraft so we'll be right back after this break david costa renegade aviator with mr art Grubensk. the apaches tandem seats situate the pilot higher in the rear cockpit while a weapons officer and co-pilot sit in the front both can fly the helicopter. The pilot uses a PNVS wide-angle infrared night vision system for navigation, while the gunner employs a rotating TADS targeting system that combines a zoomable infrared camera system with a laser targeting system mounted on the turret on the Apache nose. The crew is protected by a 2,500 pounds of light boron plating and Kevlar line seats, and the fuel tanks have a self-sealing protection system. Both laser and radar warning receivers alert the crew to imminent missile attacks. And a rotor-mounted ALQ-144A disco ball infrared jammer can direct heat-seeking missiles. The Apache has two 1,700-horsepower T-700GE turboshafts. On each side of the fuselage in heat-signature-reducing pods... They turn to the four-bladed main and tail rotors that are made of steel and composite. And this thing flies at 182 miles an hour, service ceiling of about 21,000 feet, and an endurance of about 150 minutes. So despite weighing nine tons loaded, the Apache has proven exceptionally agile, capable of pulling off rolls and loops and barrel rolls. Barrel rolls and loops? right on man that is renegade aviator stuff go get some (laughs) okay and you apache guys i know i know i might have screwed up a bit on the latest and greatest weapons and targeting and details but my point here is simple this ain't your mama's chopper in quotes hey did you figure out who this is this is david costa i am the renegade aviator and i need your help i'm looking for volunteers so call me 888-366-5256 oh no what do they do now our first veterans event in support of vets with wings i need people to help me plan this first event we only have a short time to do this so i'm looking for people who can execute a plan quickly what are we doing A hanger party, what else? 888-366-5256. If you wish to sponsor, if you wish to help, Vets with Wings is in need of our support. And the Renegade Aviator is doing our part right here in the Reno-Carson-Tahoe area. 888-366-5256. I will call you back personally with the details, so call me. You always wanted to volunteer, now's your chance. David Costa, Renegade Aviator. You know, flying can sometimes be upsetting sometimes you have a bad attitude don't let this happen to you renegade jets can help you recover from an upset pilots today simply do not practice the skills required to control the aircraft in all attitudes and within the entire flight envelope if you're a pilot and want jet upset training in real jet airplanes call 888-366-5256 suggestions, or recommendations, call the Renegade Aviator at 888-366-5256 anytime
0: and leave us a message.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, 888-366-5256, talking about the AH AH-64. Apache helicopter, and I really hope I got that uh, designation correct. Being a fixed-wing guy, you know, I actually flew a helicopter, Art, this summer for the first time after 15,000 hours of flying time. I got into an R-44 and looked at the gal who was giving me my first flight and said, well, this thing actually lift me off the ground. So the R-44, most people know, is not an Apache. Tell us what an Apache really is.
0: Right. I actually had the opportunity to, to fly an R-22 we thought maybe i could uh rent it for the family but you know after flying a very powerful aircraft with twin turbine engines and uh getting in a small piston driven airplane when the transmissions like a, a fan belt in your car i, I decided not to <laughs>
1: but, <laughs> good choice uh,
0: well the, the apache it was designed as i said from the ground up as an attack aircraft and for survivability so if you've ever seen the picture of it the uh you know, the first thing you notice know is the way the engines are so far apart. Well, that was deliberate part of the design. So in case you did lose an engine from fire, it didn't automatically take out the other engine. Like the, some engines are co-located, so they could actually knock out the other engine just from the turbines coming apart. So that was the number one. The number two survivability was the armor. I mean, we were armored. It's a very armored aircraft, not to the point of being too heavy, but it protects the pilot and the um and some of the uh, critical systems with Kevlar, hydraulic systems, uh, drive systems, things like that. Uh, it has, uh, you know, the A model wasn't, it was sophisticated for its day, very sophisticated, especially for the night vision systems that we fly with and target with. There's two systems on the aircraft, one for the pilot, the pilot night vision system, and then the target acquisition and designation system. And, Unlike most helicopter pilots, still to this day, they fly with uh, light intensifying goggles. We flew with forward looking infrared. And, you know, back in the late 80s, it was, the technology was there, but it wasn't the best picture. So, and you fly with uh, one eye, not both. In other words, the, the image is projected on a heads up display on your eye or um, in front of your eye, not on the windscreen. So you have to learn to do that. And the camera articulates with your helmet through infrared sensors. It could target. That's why you could point and shoot with your eye uh, with the 30 millimeter because it's slaved to the helmet if you select that. So there was a lot of neat, I guess, viability options or capabilities that were built in. We had the infrared jamming device, which now today is obsolete because they've defeated that, the bad guys. So we have other systems on there. And But the big transition for me was uh, when they came out with the, the what we call the Delta model. That The Alpha model was the Desert Storm, and I was in Bosnia for eight months as well. And then uh, when the Iraq War started, the Delta model was transitioning, and that is just a completely... It's the same aircraft almost visibly, but the systems are so much more sophisticated. I uh, actually teach young... Young new pilots, uh, the communications, the digital communications, the tactical communications, and on the aircraft, and I think that's what I emphasize. I had three radios to worry about, and I tuned them with knobs like you would any other radio. Now it's all through multi-purpose displays. There's there's four data buses. There's digital communications through satellite systems. It's just amazing what these young people have to deal with, and sometimes uh, I was glad I flew the old one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because uh, when I went through the transition as a senior aviator i wouldn't say shocked. i was overwhelmed myself and but you know you do what you have to do but these kids seem to it's a different generation where they jump and they just pick it up very quickly
1: absolutely hey art we're going to come right back after this break and uh, what i want to talk about coming right back is exactly that the young kids enter in today what they face and uh a little bit more about being an aviator with a whirly thing above your head. This is David Costa. I am the Renegade Aviator. Be right back.
0: You know, one time we had a hail bomb for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking big body. Smell. You know, that gasoline smell. The whole hill Smelled like... Victory. Someday this war is going to end.
1: hours of practice the black belt is ready to begin learning do you want to be an elite level pilot or just someone who flies airplanes want to improve safety have more confidence enjoy flying more do you know any elite performer who does not use a coach thought so 888-366-5256 say hey dave i want to be a black belt aviator and we'll send you the details 888-366-5256 the host of the Renegade Aviator Radio Show, David Costa. All right, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, 888-366-5256. Find us on, oh my God, find us anywhere you get a podcast. So what is it? iHeart Radio, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and on the radio station that you're listening to right now. I've got Art Grabensk with us today, and we're talking Apache helicopters, man. We're talking down and dirty, in the dirt with the enemy. And, Art, when we kind of were coming through the iterations of the aircraft in the last segment, you were telling us how the aircraft is modified, but there's tactics, too, that have modified. And these kids today, and we call them kids, but they're more adult than most adults I know. These kids today are looking in the eye of the enemy and pulling a trigger but the roles are shifting and the battleground and the battlefield changes. Tell us a little bit about that iteration.
0: Sure, as I said, the aircraft was designed in most of my career was training for the big the tank battle or the big troops in the open deep in enemy territory. Well, with uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and uh, Iraqi Freedom, it's been much more close in fight. It's protecting those troops on the ground directly. They're fighting at uh, 500 feet. And it's just amazing some of the gun camera film that I've seen and how busy it gets. And ground fire, just like in Vietnam, is still one of the biggest threats in some of these environments. And um, so that's part of what I try to tell the, these young aviators is, you know, be very aware because, you know, the cockpit, the radios, you know, actually show a film where, you know, all four radios are blaring, and the operations in the rear, your wingman, the troops on the ground, the medevac coming in getting engaged and of course your own cockpit communicate it gets very very busy and uh, that's just again the environment today or at least it's been in the theaters we've been in, but I can tell you that being here at Fort Rucker, the home of Army Aviation, the warfighting center here, is uh, there's gonna be a shift because there's still armor out there. And then some of our biggest adversaries are still building and massing those kind of systems. So I think hopefully not, but the aviators are gonna have to be ready for the same type of um, threat that I was trained in most of my career.
1: And I like how you say, you know, hopefully not, Because, again, having you been there and what you've seen and what these people are seeing today, we all hope that we never have to go fight another war. But it's not that way. Uh, Young men and women today it used to be just young men, but now it's young men and women are being called into combat. And, yeah, even back when I was a sniper in, in the Marine Corps, what we did back then was antiquated to what these kids are doing today. So you see this next generation of kids coming up. You see them out there. And we all want to put down the younger generation, right? We all want to say, well, we had a tougher when we were in, and we were better, more mature. What are you seeing in the young generation of Army aviators today?
0: Well, I tell you, I'm just blessed to do this because what, what I did in my experience, you know, there was other places, opportunities for me, but I'm telling you, when you're down here with these kids, it makes me feel young again, and to be able to tell them, and they they love the stories. They're related, because that's part of teaching, is is trying to have the students understand, or try to relate it to what they may do, and what you did, so I tell you, it's great for me. You know, there's young women in the classes, there's young men in the classes, and they're very enthusiastic, they're very respectful. It just makes me feel really good. My daughter was in uh, naval aviation, as a mechanic on the aircraft engines, and my stepson was a electronics a technician on the, uh, the Navy's P-3 Orion, and I guess they wanted to follow in dad's footsteps. I got to fly, but, but I'm telling you, it's just a very gratifying feeling, and it, it makes you feel proud and confident. In the future, I'm telling you, that's how I feel every time a new class comes through.
1: Which I didn't say, and you're too humble to say, you're a decorated veteran yourself. I did look at the decorations and awards you have. So first and foremost, I want to thank you for your service. And uh, what I found out of Apache helicopter pilots, they're some of the most calm together people. And I'm sure there's variances of this, but I know a couple of Apache guys, and they've all been excellent aviators. But you guys see aviation from a different view, especially combat aviation. And for that, I want to thank you.
0: Well, thank you. And when uh, I do get thanked, I always tell folks that uh, it was no sacrifice for me. It was an honor. And it was the best time of my life.
1: We hear that all the time. And it really is good to hear that our next generation coming up, we talk about aviators being a thing of the past. We talk about drones taking over and combat going the way of automation Um, But there's still at some point you got to put somebody behind a trigger and they got to be willing to pull that trigger in defense of our country. And it's certainly really, really good to hear that uh, there's people like you that have been there, done that, teaching this next generation that um, they're going to have that same tickly feeling in their stomach or that pit in the stomach when they get called to do what we all hate to have to do. But we do it. Because that's our job. That's
0: right. And that's been the most I got to also fly in the recent war in Iraq. And those kids on the ground, when they get to know you and they're glad you're up there. And uh, since me and my co-pilot were over 50, they used to call us the golden girls. <laughs> so uh, it always made us feel good that they were happy to see us. That's what
1: it's all about. Right on, sir. Art, I can't thank you enough. Um, I know you're busy. And I really do appreciate you being out there as an aviator training this, this next generation. Because... You know, experience is hard-earned, and uh, thank you so much. If you're ever out in the Reno area, look me up.
0: Okay, sure will, David. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, sir. All right. Despite its successes, the AH-64 remained a product of the analog-era technology. After canceling several other versions of this, the Army finally committed that a heavily modernized AH-64D variant with color digital flight displays, modern base data links, and a new GPS and Doppler radar navigational system. The D model's best-known innovation, however, was an optional drum-shaped APG-78 longbow radome on its mast atop the Apache rotor. It was used to target the radar-guided Hellfire up to five miles away. The longbow's raised position allowed an Apache to track multiple air or ground targets while hovering concealed behind trees or hills. Later Apaches also received modernized arrowhead MTAD sights, and some could carry Stinger heat-seeking missiles on the tips of their wing stubs for use against helicopters, drones, and slow-flying aircraft. questions, comments, suggestions or inspirational stories call the Renegade Aviator dial 888-366-5256 anytime and leave us a message want to listen to all of our shows? find us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud or anywhere you find podcasts just search the Renegade Aviator radio show AV, the number 8R RenegadeAviator.com So Questions, comments, suggestions, or recommendations? Call the Renegade Aviator at 888-366-5256 anytime
0: and leave us a message.
1: The future Apache. The Apache continues to evolve in the 21st century. The latest AH-64E Guardian model boasts upgraded engines, remote drone control capabilities, and sensors designed to highlight muzzle flashes on the battlefield below. The Army has also experimentally deployed Apaches on U.S. Navy ships and had them practice anti-ship missions and even tested a laser-armed Apache. Figure that one out. As short-range air defense systems grow increasingly deadly and attack helicopters more costly, the survivability of even the Apache on the 21st century battlefields remains open to question. However, the attack helicopter's ability to ferret out and find battlefield targets and hammer them with precision missiles remains highly valued. Therefore, the Army plans to keep flying these Apaches into the 2040s by which time a new generation of, in quotes, future vertical lift helicopters may eventually assume that role. And that's from an article by Sebastian Roblin. So, you know what? Modern combat is changing, or so we think. For all the technology... For all the improvements to weapons, man has gotten pretty skilled at the destruction of other men. Unfortunately, the world still needs the gunfighter. Unfortunately, we still have groups of people that feel the need to control other groups of people. Humans are an interesting animal. We're seldom content to simply exist and enjoy life. There's part of us that must terrorize, torture, and use force on people to live a certain way or to do certain things. I'm anti-war, man, and I'm sure that anyone who's been in combat has got a little bit of anti-war in them. What idiot would be pro-war? You know, that's nice. That's great, right? It's nice to be anti-war, but a reality exists in humankind. War will continue to be a part of who we are. We will continue to ask our kids, our younger generation, to risk all they have for what we expect to be done. Unfortunately for them, they don't get to choose how or where the war is fought or even why. So we call on good people to do horrible jobs for all the technology, for all the automation. At some point, it comes down to a guy pulling the trigger and doing what they either know is right or at the very least, knowing that they did all they could to do the right things. Kudos to the gunslingers, the modern aviators. Thank you, Art Grebensk, for your insights today. I really do appreciate it. That's it. We're out of time. This is David Costa. I am the Renegade Aviator. See ya.